sandwich boy. What did you just say? Sandwich boy. Who is that? It feels like a sandwich. Timba? Like the loaf of bread. He did look like a loaf. Mm-hmm. He was a big loaf. <laughs> well, anyways, I did have some stuff I wanted to talk about at the beginning of this episode. What? As we mentioned in a previous mini episode, you might have heard in our MTV Unplugged episode, but I wanted to do an announcement on a full episode because more people listen to these than our mini episodes, which is fine. That we have a whole lot of new fucking listeners and it happens every season that we release and we had kind of taken a big break there because Cassie had a baby named Steve and she doesn't like him as you can can hear. That's not his name. But it's fine. We won't tell you what his real name is. But basically, it's kind of crazy. I was thinking about it the other day. We have been around for a a while now. It's been a few years. And when you think about it, our podcast has a history. Like we have a whole, not even looking at the artists that we've covered and all of the stories that we've done, but just us as like a group of people have a history that people could be coming in and listening to our show at any point during that history. And they don't know what the fuck is going on. So they don't know Mike. (laughs) They don't know Mike. (laughs) They don't know Erica. Erica. They they just don't know what the fuck has been happening for the whole history of the show. Cause we started out like three years ago and we had a different co-host, not Jake. um, And we have actively been trying to erase the history <laughs> of the previous co-host. But Jeez. somebody could come in at any point during this. They could have been here since the beginning. They could have come in right when Jake started. They could be coming in now and not even have gone back and learned that there was another person. They could be coming way down the future when we have erased the first co-host completely. And they'll be like, we always hear about this guy, but we don't know who the fuck he is. That's because we're, we're also like, magicians. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just interesting that our whole podcast has a history outside of the stories that we're telling okay because we've been around for so long and uh so we do have some i guess banter between us we try to keep that to a minimum as much as possible on the main episodes on our, on our actual uh stories that we are covering the mini episodes are where you can kind of get to know us a little bit more just as people we we cover some like easy quick stories but we also bullshit a lot so if you don't like the bullshit i am very sorry but you can click through and find when the actual story starts. So how um, much of that are you about to edit out? I don't know. Probably <laughs> enough. But okay. thank you guys for finding our podcast, um, for listening to us. I hope that we don't annoy the fuck out of you. But somehow we have a lot of people who have stuck with us through the ages. So um, I think we, we just forget that we have a lot of new people coming in every day that we don't know. And we still kind of talk to each other as if you guys have been listening the whole time. So... I hope that you give our show a shot, even if you don't know what the fuck we're talking about, because the more you listen, the more you're going to know what's up. But yeah, we've been around for three years. We've had many different little stages. There was a time before we had a website, before my sister was involved, before we had t-shirts, before we had Patreon, before we had a Facebook group and we're actually interacting with our listeners. Yes. So now that we've been around for this long and, and grown our own little community... It feels like we're just talking to our friends. We're no longer talking to a bunch of faceless strangers. So forgive us if we get a little bit chummy. Actually, fuck you if you think we're okay, too friendly. Cut that um, part out. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, 
Yeah, so last time we did a full episode, we talked about Sister Rosetta Tharp, which Kathleen came into our little Facebook group and said that she had never actually heard of her before, but was uh, she said she was listening to, what's that, Sirius, that's what it is, Sirius XM, and uh, saw that they were playing her music all over the 40s channel, but she enjoyed learning about Sister Rosetta Tharp. You need to listen to her Foundations of Rock and Roll right there so go back and listen to that episode and today we are covering one that's been requested a lot for literally for years um i think mm-hmm. that we started this podcast a couple of years after chester bennington died and he's been a constant request since the very beginning but we wanted to give it a few years before we tried to tackle it because we knew it was going to be big and we wanted as much information as possible and it takes time for all of this stuff to come out. So we have what I know now is going to definitely be a two-parter because Cassie got into it and uh, now it's 20 pages and she's not even done yet. So yeah. <laughs> we're going to stop at where we think is a decent halfway point, but we don't actually know what the halfway point will be because Cassie's not done yet. Yeah. <laughs> also, um, just right up front, we Cassie makes a playlist for every episode mm-hmm. and we usually include that in the description for the show. I don't know if you can actually click on that link, though. I think in some browsers you cannot click on that link. So uh, Kathleen brought up a great point that we should post the playlist in the Facebook group. Every- Stop farting, Jake. No, you're welcome. Every week <laughs> so that you guys can find it easier because we've been sharing playlists a lot lately in our Death by Music podcast fans Facebook group. So we're going to start posting those links up there. You guys can find them a whole lot easier. Uh, and on that, shall we introduce ourselves? Uh, you can. That's your fucking job. Oh, right. Welcome to Death by Music Podcast, everybody. I am Jake, and I'm here with Cassie and Alex. Uh, as you may have figured out, we're talking about Chester Bennington. I've been anticipating this specific episode for a long time. I think ever since I I joined up and, and we had been, we had talked about it. It's tough. I, I th- we had that Q&A a couple mm-hmm. years ago. Yeah. Where somebody had asked what the, you know, because the topics that we deal with, what's what's the toughest episode that we, all the three of us had dealt with individually. Mm-hmm. And up to that point, for me, it was Lane Staley, just because of his, Yeah, he spent just 10 years essentially rotting away yeah. by himself on on heroin, and that, that really affected me. But this one, I, this this one tops that for me. It's a lot more personal, I think, mainly because I know more of Linkin Park's work mm-hmm. and I can relate to them more on a certain level than I can with the other people that we've done. So mm-hmm. I think it hits differently too when you grew up listening to their music. Mm-hmm. Right. Because uh, you can you can hear a story for the first time and it can be very tragic and upsetting, but it is a little bit different when it's somebody you feel like you've known for half of your life mm-hmm. or more. And I know that you've been listening to Linkin Park for a really long time. Yeah, well, pretty much since they've been out. I mean, I remember hearing them on the radio. Like I said, at first, I wasn't, I didn't pay much mind. I mean, the music was fine, but uh, mm-hmm. I didn't get into them until probably after Minutes to Midnight. Like I think I talked about in other episodes. I bought that album, and after that's when I really started getting into them. And I kind of, it's one of those groups where even after I bought that album, they kind of, dropped off my radar for a bit mm-hmm. but then i came back to him years later and started remembering like wow this shit is really really good mm-hmm. and 
you know, just kind of took off from there. Well, um, I know we've come we've come up against some issues with different episodes, writing for different episodes, because there hasn't been a whole lot of information like with Sister Rosetta Tharp and with you guys will find out Bessie Smith. These artists weren't given the same amount of attention Mm-hmm. partially probably most likely because they were black women because also they were coming up in the 30s and 40s so they weren't around when the internet was a thing and uh their history was in sister rosetta tharp's case or er- basically erased until somebody years and years later was like what the fuck why are we not talking about her and had to do all of this research after the fact after like all of this information and all of these first person sources were already gone so we we tried to give them full, long, and all-encompassing episodes, but we could only come up with so much information. That's pretty much the opposite with Chester Bennington. There's so mm-hmm. much out there, and he died in, was it 2017? And there is a fuck ton of information. There were so many interviews. The band was active yeah. when he when he died, so... And there's still information to this day coming out, new stuff that we've never heard before. I mean, his family's still here and still doing things. So, and his band is still doing things. Like mm-hmm. just a few weeks ago, we uh, Meteor is getting their 20th anniversary mm-hmm. reissue, and they released a new song from Lincoln Park that was recorded in like 2003. Mm-hmm. So, it's uh, this one's going to be long, and I hope that you know in the future we can give the same sort of treatment to some of the black artists that we cover, you know, because I feel like those episodes are always the shortest and I don't think it's fair. You know? No, it's not. And I, I, I noticed that when we were doing Marilyn Monroe in uh, uh, Frank, Frank Sinatra, Sinatra. It's, you, you so can almost, shit. yeah, you can almost get a daily count of what they did daily in their lives. Like mm-hmm. that's how much detail there is in those stories. A lot of times when we're doing these episodes and they, they stretch out into any of these big long ones like this one it's like i don't know that we can do them justice as far as uh, we're, we're able to get the the basic outline of their lives out to mm-hmm. you guys and if you guys are interested you know you can obviously go dig into, into it more yeah but it, it just makes it difficult to kind of give you a, 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 a accurate picture of who these people actually were if that makes sense well i also think that chester is the most recent mm-hmm. that we've done and not only is there stuff because they were growing as a band with the internet right. and there was things that they were trying for the first time like we covered mm-hmm. with Avicii, Avicii. Mm-hmm. Um, how they were doing specific things they had apps that would go along with their albums there's like different things that we're going to get into but then even like Alex said after his death there are so many things coming out there's much more of an awareness of mental illness and Mm -hmm. talking about that stigma of men you know having depression or anxiety even you know where it was taught back then you know that you didn't talk about it or you just had to push through your emotions it's Mm -hmm. it's not as fair growing up previously to you know this day and age because they didn't have that kind of empathy that we do now so there's a lot of that going into it as well but again there's so much information yeah that even after is coming out about you know what he talked about then Mm -hmm. because he was very open about his mental health but then you know where then his bandmates start talking you know it's you got to give him a grieving period too like everyone so we didn't want to do this right away 
but it's still like it's raw almost i can't imagine what's going to happen when we go to talk about taylor hawkins i'm not (laughs) it's not going to be fun for me at all i mean none of this is none of this is fun at all but you know just getting the music heard and out there like it's good that we can do sister rosetta tharp or you know anybody else raising awareness obviously a lot of people know who chester bennington is but we're in it to let people know i just uh, yeah i just want to be able to tell everybody's story the best that we possibly can and equally and it sucks that we're not able to tell their stories equally because of the information at our disposal but um, hopefully we can do Chester Bennington some justice. We have a really, really long episode already, two parts, and I think it's going to be, uh, I think we're probably going to struggle because these get really sad. They start to wear on you. I mean, yeah. I think that's also why we take some long breaks between episodes too, because it is fucking taxing, man. I don't know how true crime podcasts do it because they're telling these really gory and like really fucking tragic stories every single week. And it's like, how do you not, how does that not make you sad and maybe it does ultimately we're all music lovers and we want to talk about the music and the impact that these people have had on our lives while they were still alive and Chester Bennington is certainly a very impactful character so I guess with that long intro we should get into the episode Uh, (laughs) so some sources here Uh, number one our homie our babe wikipedia you know what i feel like maybe we should next christmas donate to wikipedia send them a dollar (laughs) one dollar you know all three of us get that that ten percent of our patreon don't all they do is host the site most other people edit it and add things that's true so it's literally the general public they're just hosting the domain name it's fine that's a good point i'm not giving them shit uh swift.com there was an article by stassi reed Tom Bryant, there was an interview for Kerrang, a Kerrang feature by Matt Allen. LinkinPark.fandom.com, they had a bit on Gray Days, which we'll get into later. There was an editorial by Amanda Robinson. Billboard's excerpt from Samantha Bennington's book, Falling Love Notes, which I thought was kind of weird because she her name is Samantha Olet, and that's what we're going to refer to her as in this episode. She was Chester's first wife, but when she writes, she used his last name even though he was married huh. again, you know? So, anyways. Uh, MTV article by John Viderhorn. We like that guy. <laughs> there was a Billboard article by Gary Graff, Loudwire by Chad Childers. A Rolling Stone article by Corey Grow. A Rolling Stone article by Chad Unterberger. And Riff Magazine for Riff Radio. There was one by Mike DeWald. Also, Victoria helped us write. She probably got... Well, like five or six pages into this when we got our hands on it. So we did most of the work, but just kidding. <laughs> um, she started us off here. And a lot of this is direct quotes because like we said, this was very recent and Chester did a lot of fucking interviews. Oh he yeah, seemed, they're all over the place. Dude, he seemed like a great interview because having done a handful of interviews before, some artists don't like doing that shit mr biscuit mr biscuit from limp biscuit himself <laughs> that guy fred durst uh which are, that that interview is posted on our fucking feed yeah. if you want to go look at my interview with fred durst what the fuck man so like you never know what sort of mentality an artist is going in with are mm. they hungry are they tired are they on tour do they not fucking like talking to media people uh and then there are some artists who 
are an open book and will just give you such deep, insightful, honest information. And you don't even know them and they don't have to be like that. But it seems like Chester was like that with every interviewer that he talked to because there are so many quotes. And in a lot of cases in this uh, in this episode, it's better to hear it just from his mouth. Because I know, Cassie, when you when you first looked at this document, you were like, holy shit, this whole thing's quotes. But I was like, I mean, I don't want to paraphrase him because he says it the best way. It's yeah. like straight from the well, horse's mouth. Well, when I first mouth. looked at it, there was not like an intro or any type of like structure to it. It was just quotes. And I was like, I can't do this right now. <laughs> it has shaped up to be 20 pages you guys are gonna just quote <laughs> just kidding you're gonna love no it. there's a lot of quotes i had to keep adding more because i was like this is pertinent information why did we skip this but it's fine there's so much yeah there's so much little heads up for you guys that it could be triggering to some people there is abuse there's sexual abuse in here there are some really just uh there's substance abuse there's mm. self-harm suicide so trigger warning for pretty much all of the things you could be triggered by, they're going to be in this episode. Take that into consideration if you continue listening. Mm. Chester Bennington was the lead singer of the rock band Linkin Park, which if you grew up in the mid-2000s, you absolutely know who they were. Mm. Linkin Park's album Hybrid Theory came out in 2000 and was certified diamond by the RIAA, making it the best-selling debut album of the decade. Diamond certification is the highest from the RIAA, meaning over 10 million sold. The most current worldwide sales i could find says 27 million as of 2014 so that's 10 years ago uh with the riaa certifying the album at over 12 million sold in the u.s alone in 2020 okay so as with all of our stories this one ends in tragedy but it also starts with tragedy so strap in Chester was born in March of 1976 in Phoenix, Arizona. Well, damn, we were just there. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, we did mention him uh, that he was from there in our special uh, business trip Patreon episode. Hmm. So, which I could I had forgotten about that, but we, yeah, did we mention him in there? Yeah, oh. I went back and looked at the the document we had because we we picked out artists that we knew, right? And he was one of them. I, I completely uh, completely forgot about that. So his mother Susan was a nurse, and his father Lee was a police detective that worked on child sex abuse cases. And Chester was the youngest of four with with uh, two older half sisters and an older half brother, Brian Bennington. There isn't a ton of information on his early years except for hardships that he went through as a child. So he told Kerrang! Magazine in 2008, I started getting molested when I was about seven or eight. It was by a friend who was a few years older than me. It escalated from a touchy, curious, what does this thing do, into full-on crazy violations. I was getting beaten up and being forced to do things I didn't want to do. It destroyed my self-confidence. Like most people, I was too afraid to say anything. I didn't want people to think I was gay or that I was lying. It was a horrible experience. The sexual assaults continued until I was 13. So, at that point, half of his life, at age 13, he had been sexually assaulted Mm. his concerns were totally valid especially for the time if you remember uh from our freddie mercury episode the 80s were rife with homophobia due to the aids epidemic being erroneously labeled gay cancer gay people were heavily discriminated against and gay sex was not fully decriminalized by the supreme court in the united states until 2003 Mm. 
On top of that, even today, there is still significantly greater amounts of skepticism applied to male victims of sexual assault, and men are less likely to report sexual assault for fear of not being believed. Yeah, according to RAIN, which is the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, statistics show that since 1998, 2.78 million men in the U.S. have been victims of attempted or completed rape. About 3% of American men, or 1 in 33, have experienced an attempted or completed rape in their lifetime, and 1 out of every 10 rape victims are male. So I'm over here trying to figure out how his dad didn't see the signs of a problem, if that's what his specialty in the police department was. I mean, we're not trying to place blame or anything. However, you would assume that any detective working in that field would be kind of hypervigilant of their own children. But again, if he's not home enough, that could also have been the problem. Also, I wonder... Because uh, Chester said it was a, quote, friend friend Mm -hmm. who was Mm -hmm. only a couple years older than he was, would his father have suspected that? So he's he's more tuned into probably adult abuse of children. Mm, That's a good point. Yeah. So at age nine, his parents separated. And his father was awarded full custody, which is still obviously super rare. Yeah. So the divorce was finalized in 1987 when Chester was 11 years old. According to the Nikki Swift article, his dad was pulling double shifts at the department. So like you said, working a lot. Chester did say that his dad wasn't very emotionally stable himself. I mean, I wouldn't imagine so. He just went through a divorce and he works in a highly, highly specialized unit of the police. Mm. Now... I don't know how it was in the 80s, but I'm pretty sure that these investigators, at least now, uh, are required to go to counseling and have psych evals, you know, quite regularly just to make sure that they are not suffering from, like, PTSD-type yeah. uh, PTSD uh, symptoms. Yeah, um, people who have jobs like that, I mean, there there are people whose job it is to watch the flagged videos on YouTube or whatever, yeah. or, like, the flagged shit on Twitter to make sure that it's not violating their terms. And they see some fucked up shit every single day. They, like, the turnover rate for that kind of job has got to be super high, but somebody has to do it because you have to make sure that all of this, like, really abusive and fucked up shit isn't on the internet for, like, anybody to see. Nobody should see that, but somebody has to see it to mm-hmm. remove it. So Chester spent a lot of time alone in his room. His older brother and sister left home early, and his other sister just wasn't around much. In the Kerrang interview, Chester said, It was an awful time. I hated everybody in my family. I felt abandoned by my mom. My dad was not very emotionally stable then, and there was no one I could turn to. At least that's how my young mind felt. The only thing I wanted to do was kill everybody and run away. Chester was interested in music from a very young age. He said in interviews that his earliest inspirations were Depeche Mode and Stone Temple Pilots. During his time by himself at his dad's house, he drew pictures and wrote poetry and songs with the intention of making sense of his feelings. When Chester got to high school in the early to mid-90s, he was bullied and knocked around for being a skinny kid and looking different. Honestly, he looks normal to me, but this is also old me talking. So it's like, maybe I would have bullied him. No, I wouldn't. I'm you just would kidding. Never. No, but you also I, I would have been sitting there getting bullied with them. That's that's what would have happened. No. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> kids are mean. They're insecure. Oh, they are. Their high school was awful for most people. So yeah. they it they pick on everybody. others to boost their own self esteem. Yada yada. But as a kid, you don't understand that concept until you're older, mm-hmm. and I right. can't imagine the things about you that are celebrated when you get older are the exact reasons why people pick yep. on you as a school child. Yep. 
So before joining his first band at the age of 15, Chester had already fallen into meth, cocaine, LSD, and alcohol usage pretty hard mm. to numb his childhood pain and loneliness. Good grief. He went from zero to 100 real quick. Mm. Um, he says he started when he was 11. That's fucking crazy that you could be around that stuff then. Like, holy shit. Uh, but he explained to Kerrang! Magazine, I was a lot more confident when I was high. I had more control over my environment when I was on hallucinogens or drinking. In the same interview, Chester said, I took everything. I got really, really bad. Until he was 16, I was doing a ton of LSD and a ton of drinking. Then when we couldn't find acid, we turned to speed because it was cheap and it worked really, really well. I got really bad really quickly. On a normal day, my friends and I would go through an eight ball. We were smoking it in bongs. I was doing bong hits of meth. It was ridiculous. Then we'd smoke opium to come down or we'd take pills or I'd drink so much that I'd shit my pants. It was not pretty. That's that's not pleasant sounding. Any of it. Like shitting the pants, obviously, but doing the drugs. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. It's a wonder he survived taking those kinds of drugs and then taking other drugs to come off the drugs you just took. That's mind boggling to me. Uh, anyways, anybody wondering what an eight ball is, that is one eighth of an ounce of, uh, or 3.5 grams of cocaine. Okay. And now that I have a food scale, it is a food scale. Cause when uh, I got my food scale, are, in the I mail, haven't seen you measure any food on that thing. That is bullshit. There is some kind of powder. That's protein <laughs> powder. <laughs> and, and also I have a lot of other supplements too. Uh-huh. But uh, since I started doing personal training at the gym, I got a food scale. And as soon as I took it out of the package, Jake was like, oh, is that for your drugs? <laughs> but now I know what 3.5 grams looks like because I'm supposed to eat. Wait, no, I don't. I'm thinking in ounces. Uh, well, eighth of an ounce. An eighth of an ounce. So if you're eating like a four ounce steak. Yeah. Split that into four. So you have one ounce steaks and then an eighth of that would be oh that's not that much that's not that much steak but i assume that's a lot of cocaine probably i i was thinking four <laughs> four ounces of cocaine i was like that's fucking that, that's, that's a steak that'll put you in federal prison i'm pretty sure <laughs> probably <laughs> as it should okay i, I was, still am not good at math on my way here i was i'm listening to the audiobook of seth rogan's yearbook and he's talking about this time that his friend and him did mushrooms in Amsterdam and they went to the specialty shop to get these mushrooms. And like in America, they can take like three mushrooms and it's like 3.5 grams like this cocaine. However, he thought because of, I don't know, them being in Amsterdam, it wasn't as potent. And so they ordered 90 grams of mushrooms what? because you could only get 30 per pack. And they asked like, how many people, like how many do they take? And the guy's like, depends on the person. He's like, we'll take three. We want 90 grams of mushrooms. They proceeded to take all of them and then hallucinate, or hallucinate, <laughs> hallucinate for almost an entire day. Holy shit. And they shit. kicked in immediately. They also said it was like the, mes- the mushrooms usually are dry in America, but there they were wet. So oh, they were like, no. maybe since they're dry, they're more concentrated. But I'm no, assuming because they were the wet, opposite. they were more concentrated. I was like, y'all are dumb. So anyway, I thought I'd show that. It was yeah, really funny. It's actually the really opposite. Yeah. Yeah, they were safe about it, I guess. Um, I don't know. Yes. <laughs> we do. Like, so where he says up at the top, Chester, not Seth. Um, where he, you know, is a lot more confident when he was high. We've discussed in previous episodes that those in the spotlight use substances to help them get into their kind of stage persona. Jim Morrison. Um, you know, 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, helps him to loosen up. However, in Chester's case, while I'm not a doctor, this is merely speculation. Statistics show that up to three quarters of people who survived abuse or violent traumatic events report drinking problems. Men specifically are two times more likely to have alcohol problems if they have PTSD than men who don't have PTSD. And using too much makes it harder to cope with stress and your trauma like memories being cut off from others, feeling angry and irritable, feeling depressed and feeling jittery and like you're always on guard. Yeah, because so we mentioned uh, maybe off the show when mm. we weren't recording how if, you know, you like use alcohol as a way to cope yeah. with PTSD, but at a certain point it adds and it like compounds your PTSD is basically what this is mm-hmm. saying. You know, when you're getting fucked up every single day, it's just going to make it worse. Right. And anxiety is a thing, too. I read an article about uh, why you sometimes feel more anxious after a night of drinking. And it's because of the receptors and shit in your brain. Like, it's messing with your brain chemistry and uh, it's raising your cortisol levels. So you do feel more stressed and anxious and jittery scientifically. Also. Just from having being like that. I mean, I don't know about you, but. I'm a little bit too old to just be able to be drinking and not have a day hungover. I think we talked about this too. Yeah. It's, I would be anxious just from losing a day being sick feeling. Mm -hmm. I don't have time for this. I need stuff. I need to get stuff done. That sort of thing. So yeah, it just makes it worse. So according to the Dawn Rehab, Bennington started to work some odd jobs, including a job at Burger King. In 1992, he was out at a friend's house when a gang known as the Mexican Mafia broke in, pistol whipped his friends, stole all their money, and took Chester's bike. It was at this moment that he decided he was going to give up the drugs. Ah, but did he? Foreshadowing. Also in 1992, he stepped into the rehearsal space of Sean Dowdle, who was was looking for a new lead singer for his band. Chester was two years younger than the rest of the band at the time. He was just 15. So if you can do math... That would tell you that the other members were 17. He auditioned with a raw, cathartic take on Pearl Jam's hit single, Alive. Sean Dowdle, when recalling the audition, said, First of all, he could scream in key, and this was before bands like System of a Doubt. Chester was one of the first guys doing that. But he could also emulate Stone Temple Pilots, Nirvana, Soundgarden, and Pearl Jam, and all the bands we looked up to at the time. He hadn't developed his own vocals yet, but he could emulate those styles. That was the foundation for what became Chester's voice. It's pretty damn impressive he could do all this without any formal training. Yeah, he's definitely a natural. Sean reportedly asked him, when can you start? And Chester replied, I don't know. I need to speak with my manager. Just kidding. (laughs) I need to speak with my dad. Will you come with me? Sean agreed to go, even though he says he was a rock kid with super long hair, anti-police, and ignorant to how the world worked. Sean detailed, when I turned up with Chester and his dad was in a police uniform, I said, I'd really like to see your son to sing in our band. And his immediate concern was, how's that going to affect his schooling? Is he going to get his homework done? I gave his dad my word that I'd make sure he would study and the music wouldn't interfere. And for the first year, Chester did exactly that. But he ended up dropping out after he'd left his dad's house. So the band at the time were working under the name Sean Dowdle and his friends. Yes, that's a question. Uh, and they released a three-track cassette before changing their name to Grey Days when Chester was 16. 
The band was a grungy 90s band inspired by Alice in Chains, Nirvana, and Soundgarden. According to AllMusic, the band used minor chords, sludgy execution, and dour lyrics. Uh, sludgy indeed. It's an interesting listen, and you can find it pretty easy on YouTube. It, it's just cool being able to hear the genesis of musicians with these old demo tapes like you did uh, with uh, Kurt Cobain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even groups like Metallica way in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. You might not be able to find their like a physical tape, but it's it's pretty much all on the internet. So you can go back and listen to them before they were who they are now, which I, I find is really cool. Yeah, when I first heard um, Metallica's demo, No Life to Leather, I could not fucking believe that that was James Hetfield singing. Like, I thought for sure Oh, you're talking the one be... where he wasn't metal at all. He was like, he was so young and his voice was so high and he was just like, I was like, what the fuck is that Dave Mustaine? That's not James Hetfield. And it sure enough was him. Like, I just couldn't believe hearing. And then like, you listen to it a little bit more and you're like, okay, I guess that is his voice. It's just weird hearing them so young. Uh, So Chester said in the Kerrang interview that his relationship with this band was the first time he felt a connection with anyone. He stated, I knew those guys would back me up. From then on, I started getting some confidence back. The problem was I also found a good way to escape the abuse of my past. Getting high, drinking a lot, and having sex with a lot of great girls is a pretty good escape. Chester and Sean were close friends and tight-knit songwriters. Sean said they loved to write lyrics together because they could express emotional intent. He also said that Chester was a genius with the ability to express his emotions into a metaphor. When he was... 16 to 17-ish, Chester left his dad's house and crashed on Sean's sofa, but didn't have access to a car, so he would go to class with Sean at Arizona State University, even though he wasn't in college, and they would go to band practice after Sean's classes were over. Sean said that for a semester and a half, he would be taking tests in this college class, even though he wasn't even a student. No roll call, huh? At least didn't have to deal with those uh, pesky student loans. That's honestly the way. If you want to go to college and you want to learn stuff, don't go to college. Cassie's very much against it. <laughs> don't do it. Just show up. And it's it's honestly not for some people. Like it just it's you not. Yeah, it's be not for everybody to do something you don't want to do in general. But how do you think the teacher felt at the end of the semester, or like even in general? It was like this kid. You get. An enrollment list. I don't yeah. know. I mean, I guess this was early it must 2000s have been a big, or 90s. 90s. I'm imagining it's one Giant of those lectures. big lecture hall classes where they truly they just can't wouldn't even tell. notice. Yeah, because I took some smaller classes where it was like high school classroom size, and they definitely would have been like, "Yeah, you can't <laughs> be in here. Like, you need to leave." Yeah, there were a lot of my classes that were like 12 people. So, well, yeah, because you were what a music degree. Yeah, <laughs> which is crazy because you know you wanted the business aspect of things. But they didn't have a way to merge everything together. So you, they did. The, I was the first year like music business degree that they had because they had just kind of merged those uh. two dynamics. And there was one business class and then like a marketing class. But everything else was like music theory, sight singing. So you had to do weird. four semesters of a music theory to four different levels, which is math. They don't tell you that. It's math. Um, and then on top of like sight singing, doing things like singing in front of other people, like I'm not here to do this. I don't want this no, isn't the job that I'm trying to pursue. <laughs> right. I want to know how to open a business to, to where they can play music in it. Tell yes. me that. And they're like, mm, we don't have anything that's that specific. And I'm like, great, get me out of here. <laughs> how did I graduate? 
that sucks. So in 1993, when Chester was 17, after that semester and a half with Sean, he moved back in with his mother. His mom said that she was so, so shocked by his drugged out, emaciated appearance that she banned him from leaving the house for a time. So I saw in an interview, Mike Shinoda actually said Chester told him about stories about how he, Chester, was basically... Uh, quote, running wild in the streets, doing hard drugs on the roof of his high school, just barely staying out of jail. Chester said at that time he was on 11 hits of acid a day. He says, I dropped so much acid, I'm surprised I can still speak. I'd smoke a bunch of crack, do a bit of meth, and just sit there and freak out. And then I'd smoke opium to come down. I weighed 110 pounds. My mom said I looked like I stepped out of Auschwitz. So we used... So I used pot to get off drugs. Every time I'd get a craving, I'd smoke my pot. I mean, that's not an entirely bad strategy, really. You just kind of knock out the hard shit, and there you go. But also, who was buying and supplying these drugs, and with what money? Because drugs are expensive. I think if you get the fancy drugs, like Coke, probably, but I think heroin must be cheap. Yeah, And I'm pretty sure that acid is not that expensive because it's like a tiny little piece of paper. I don't know. I've never bought it. I think they're pretty cost effective, honestly. I'm not like, I'm not condoning <laughs> it. It's way no, the I don't, outcome. I don't think that they're that expensive. There's a reason why it's so easy for, you know, people to get their hands on them. You just have to know the right people. And I don't think it's that much what I think. I think it gets expensive when you're looking at what drugs do rich people do. That shit's expensive. They do cocaine. Hmm. Ah, uh, that's right. Crack is whack. Remember that? Oh, right. We don't do crack. Did they do that to to make it more available so that other people could do crack? I right? don't fucking know. I, Look, I we've, no we go through this <laughs> multiple times and people have said, like, hearing you guys talk about drugs is fucking annoying because we don't know anything. <laughs> so Sorry. Uh, well, anyway, Chester soon admits he was a full-blown raging alcoholic. In later years, the drinking would come to take over his life. So the band started to get pretty popular at this time in Phoenix. They released their first album in 1994 entitled Wake Me and began playing sold-out local shows fairly regularly even developing enough of a following to share the stage with Bush and No Doubt in 1966... Ni- oh, God. <laughs> 1996. <laughs> there for are time a Super Bowl party show with 12,000 attendees. What, what would a Super Bowl look like in 1966? Did it exist? No. Mm-mm. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know. It, it started like 60s or 70s somewhere. Yeah. But uh, yeah, 1996... Uh, Last time the Cowboys won a Super Bowl, I is remember- that your man? Your man oh. fact? You were like, yes, I'm that's, a man that's that the can one thing I know about the Super Bowl because I just happened to be in Texas at the time that that happened, and uh, I remember everybody being big into the Cowboys and uh, their starter jackets and everything. Oh, well, I'll have to use that as one of my interesting facts when I'm talking <laughs> to men so that they think I'm one of them. The Super Bowl <laughs> was created as a part of a 1966 merger agreement between the oh. NFL and the oh, AFL. Oh, shit, I was right. Oh, my God. Kind of. I wasn't really right. But anyways. (laughs) So during... But I don't think that this was like a Super Bowl show because they were in Phoenix. I think there was just like a party thing that they were hosting in... Yeah. It it was in Texas. I don't fucking know. Never mind. I don't know what I'm talking about when it comes to football. Or drugs. Or drugs. (laughs) 
During these years of popularity with Grey Days, Chester had been dating a woman named Elka Brand. Couldn't find a ton of information on their initial relationship, but she did become pregnant. I heard she slipped and fell <sighs> on a dick. <laughs> slipped wow. and fell pregnant. <laughs> I might have heard. Um, and gave birth to their son, Jamie, on May 12th, 1996. Gemini. When Chester <laughs> was 20 years old. Um, he and Elka must have broken up either prior to or soon after Jamie was born because later that year on Halloween, Chester married Samantha Marie Olit. Jamie actually grew up to be a singer and was invited by Grey Days to re-record vocals on some of their old songs in 2019. The The band Grey Days posted to social media stating Chester would have been very proud of his son, Jamie Bennington. We had Jamie sing along with his father last night at NRG, which I guess is Energy Recording oh. Studios, and his voice is great. Sounds a lot like his father, and we were all very proud to be a part of it. Chester and Elka appeared to have remained close until his death, even after they broke up. Elka had another son, Isaiah, on November 8th of 1997 from a different man, and Chester adopted him in 2006, which is a pretty cool thing for him to do. Couldn't find a whole lot of current information on Elka or her sons, but she is pretty active on Twitter and seems like a pretty nice lady. Oh, well, that's nice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> According to a tabloid site, um, it looks like a tabloid. I just assumed there was a lot of click ads, but it was called Glamour Path. They stated that Chester actually adopted her son because he knew it was going to be difficult for her to raise two kids all by herself. And Elka Brand is actually very good friends with Chester's ex-wife, Samantha Marie Olet, and wife, Talinda Bennington. Yeah, there's a picture over here in the margins yeah. someone placed where... I did that. It made me giggle. Chester's sitting in a chair with a pimp cup, and he's got all of, you know, his homies, all of his wives oh, surrounding him. All of his baby mamas, how about that, surrounding him. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all friends. So now let's talk about his marriage to Samantha Olet. According to Samantha's book, Falling Love Notes, she first met Chester after one of his shows in Tempe, Arizona in January of 1996. So Chester was 21 and she was 22. And look at that. We finally have a guy dating an older woman for once. I like it. <laughs> yeah. She was fresh off of a divorce from someone else who mm. was actually at the concert with her along with her friend. Uh, she ended up backstage and bought one of Grey Days' CDs and saw Chester sitting down on a bar stool. She wrote in her book that he was super sick at the time with a fever of 103 degrees, but that you couldn't tell because he had so much energy. Yeah, so they ended up talking for nearly an hour or so, but also, I'm just speculating here, what was Chester potentially on to basically ignore a 103 degree fever? Perhaps Dayquil. I know that helps me. Must Not have me. been a lot of Dayquil. Dayquil. It, makes my it makes my head like... It makes me not really know what's going on. You know, I feel like cloudy. I'm, I feel when like the I'm skies in a dream. Even if it's Dayquil, it feels like I've taken Dayquil. Hmm. You know, I just get. But also, the the fact of being sick makes me have like oh, yeah. major brain fog. So I don't know. Uh, so she said that she felt an immediate spiritual connection to Chester and couldn't stop thinking about him. She said at her real estate job the next day, the whole office pushed her to find Chester in the phone book and call him. So she spent the day calling down the list. She ended up getting a hold of Chester's sister, Renee. When Renee answered the phone, Samantha said she told her, Hi, my name is Samantha, and I know how this is going to sound weird. <laughs> <laughs> However, last night at a show, I met a guy who might be your brother. 
He probably meets tons of people all the time, but I want you to know I'm not a crazy stalker chick. So in the <laughs> event he remembers me, can you please give him my name and number? I promise I'll not <laughs> contact you again. But if he wants to contact me, the ball's now in his court. Was it? Did she read wow. it that quickly? I Was hope that so. verbatim and pacing <laughs> correct? She said that the man I was searching for was indeed her brother. She continued to explain that while usually she did not reveal any information about her brother, for some odd reason, she decided to tell me. I would just for the drama. I would be like, yeah, I'll yep. give you his fucking phone number. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, what if someone did that and called and asked for your sibling in that context? What would you do? You would just give them the number and be like, yeah. It's... But she already had the number. She had the sister's number. Oh, yeah, because she didn't live with him. Phone book would have been his landline. So it's it's cute. It's a cute story. It sounds like <laughs> the start of a, like a rom-com meet cute-esque type thing. However, if someone had called me to tell me those things and then throw casually thrown in there i'm not a crazy stalker chick i have read enough mm-hmm. true crime and seen enough documentaries to know that is a red flag um it was probably fine back then you know but i not, think not yeah, today not today <laughs> i get i get what you're saying with the added on bit of i'm not a crazy stalker chick because if you're implying you, were, you, you are <laughs> you shouldn't say that because it should right. be obvious right but also i know that my dad went down the phone book and was calling all the people with my mom's maiden name in Michigan to try and track her down and get her phone number because now, remind me where did he see her the first time I don't fucking know I wasn't there um, so but they, you know they was trying to call her he was they, like Kathleen where you at they met and then I don't know and then he was like trying to figure out her contact information and he knew her last name so he called everybody in the phone book who had her last name turns out they're all fucking related to her but she was never there Huh. And then he finally called her sister, and she was at her sister's house, and she was like, I guess I'll let you talk to her. And the rest was history. Did your mom think that was weird, or was she flattered? Obviously flattered, because they ended up together, but like... Yeah, I mean, I guess she, she wasn't was, like, this creep called yeah, everybody I mean, in the phone book. Leave me the fuck alone. <laughs> I was trying to that's get some pizza. That's just how you got into contact with people back then. That's, you knew yeah. your shit was in the phone book, and if you didn't want it there, then you could, like, tell them to not put it. That's true. So I assume they wanted to be found. Anyways, it worked out. Yeah. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Right. So Samantha says that he called her back and he told her about his job at Burger King, uh, where he would work in between gigs to help pay the bills and that he continued to call her morning, noon and night for two weeks straight until she agreed to meet with him. Right. So at first I was like, wait a second. She's the one that tracked him down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he had to constantly call her to get her to meet with him. Which so was extremely confusing. Who's more creepy? Right. But he wasn't like, hey, we need to actually meet up. Hey. Hey. <laughs> I don't know why I gave him that <laughs> tone. No, that's exactly what he sounded like. <laughs> um, no, but, but it turns out that, you know, you mentioned earlier, a couple paragraphs back, that uh, she was kind of like right in the middle of a divorce. So yeah. she was actually trying to wait a few weeks until that was completely done uh. before she just completely hopped into this oh, thing. okay it's smart yeah i know because you can also if you're speculating like cheating or what have you but if it was like a mutual like they were hanging out at the show that's where she met him well right i mean so it could have been things were fine but she probably was just like i don't want to be it could have been different back then and also like you you just don't want to probably start dating until it's finalized she just wanted to want it to Common be messy courtesy. or whatever yeah you're right in the middle of this whole breakup thing and even though you can like kind of be amicable and friends it's like 
let's wait until this chapter is closed. Right. Yeah, so still no really no idea what's going on with his relationship with Elka at the time because remember while all this was happening, she was pregnant with Jamie, but ten months after meeting each other and four months after Jamie was born, Chester and Samantha got married. Damn, they didn't waste any time. No. Man. Uh so now back to the band's success. They were doing pretty well locally, but they weren't garnering any national attention. Not even after that 1966 Super Bowl party. <laughs> <laughs> no, it just didn't work for them. And their success ended quickly after an issue with their second album. So according to Kerrang, Grey Days had recorded a full album with Real Records, but their Paymaster's deal with a major label had collapsed, so there was no more money to finish mastering the album. And the label refused to return the recordings to them. That shit would piss me off true if they wanted to get their album out great ace had no choice but to re-record and repay to have their second album no sun today published the new version of the album gained a lot of radio play and they signed a demo deal with warner brothers but this growing popularity quickly stifled Many articles Victoria found basically said that the band members parted ways due to differences in musical pursuits but Sean Dowdle told a different story in a 2020 interview with Kerrang magazine he said that in 1998, when the band broke up, his own ego was a little out of control, and Mace, the band's bassist, that's, I wanted to Bassistant. say, bassistant, <laughs> the band's bassist, uh, he was struggling with addiction issues like Chester. So the band imploded on itself during a show where Mace didn't show up until 15 minutes before it was supposed to start. Sean said, he was off doing drugs or whatever. We sucked. And about four or five songs into the set, these guys came in, walked on stage, punched Mace in the face. (laughs) He flew into my drums and ruined the whole show. We went out the back of the club and started screaming at one another. I'm pissed off at Mace. Chester's pissed off at Mace. Bobby, their guitarist, is pissed off at Chester. We started yelling at each other and everyone said, fuck you and fuck you and fuck you. And we all went our separate ways and couldn't get over it. (laughs) egos man <laughs> that's it's not i mean it's terrible but it's kind of funny that these dudes just walk up on stage start punching start the, beating the, the guy yeah, yeah. the reason behind <laughs> right in the middle of the show i mean uh, he, drug if he deal was probably drug addict and maybe owed him money or something yeah. hmm. so at 22 in 1998 so at age 22 in 1998 chester swore off music and started working as an assistant at a digital services firm Recently married and expecting his musical passions to not really amount to anything. But in L.A., a new band called Zero was forming. And that is X-E-R-O. It's like Xerox without the second X. Mm -hmm. He was an assistant working in digital services. So Xeroxing would be something he was familiar with. That's a good point. Mm. That's a great band name for him. Mm Mm-hmm. Too bad he wasn't in it very long. Too bad he (laughs) swore off music. So Mark Wakefield had introduced his childhood friend Mike Shinoda to his hardcore band from high school, composed of Rob Bourdon and Brad Delson. They wanted to blend hip-hop and rock. Soon they added Dave Phoenix Pharrell and Joe Hahn. Mr. Hahn. That was an interesting distortion. Yeah, I didn't realize it would do that if I cut my hands over the microphone. Sounded cool, though. Yeah, it sounded like we put effects on you. Yeah. So their approach was the opposite of what most bands do. Zero spent more time writing than actually playing shows, Mm -hmm. which I wish more bands would do that because a lot of their music sucks. Uh, In fact, (laughs) (laughs) they only performed once or twice a month, basically to just get their friends together and party after. Their intention was just to have fun, but as they continued writing, they realized there might be some real potential in the band. 
Their demo was getting passed around to A&R guys in L.A., but nobody was biting. Eventually, Wakefield amicably drifted away from the group. Now he works management for groups including Deftones. Mike Shinoda knew that he couldn't carry the vocals on his own, so now he was scouting for somebody that had the voice he was looking for. Which kind of reminds me of uh, the Lane Staley episode when Jerry Cantrell was looking for the perfect vocalist. Mm -hmm. Lane was right there for all the auditions. They kept like going, oh, maybe this guy. And he's like, man, that guy sucks. What about Pick Me? (laughs) Yeah, so they sent their demo to Jeff Blue of Zomba Records asking for his help to find a singer. He came back with Chester. It was his 23rd birthday when Chester got the call and Jeff quickly sent their demo over. Indeed, he found himself in uh, quite a little bit of a pickle there. Uh, He had planned on having a huge birthday party, but then this opportunity landed in his lap. Obviously, he took the chance on the demo and spent his birthday recording instead. Uh, The downside being, he's taking this chance here, and Weird Al just happened to be performing his very mm. first show ever in Phoenix, uh, which was going to be a few months later in October 1999, so Chester wouldn't have had the chance to see him. That's where it ties in. Yes. Do you have like a whole list of his shows where you're just waiting for when they intersect with our timelines that we cover in the podcast? I have my sources for things. Because <laughs> was that the closest that it got? Was Chester might have seen him perform in Phoenix if he didn't go join this band? Yeah. All right, so <laughs> so he told me they had a hip-hop meets rock thing going on, says Bennington. I wasn't really into the hip-hop thing, but I told him to send it anyway. The music was really cool, and the band were very talented, but I knew I could do it better. I went into a studio and cut my vocals over their demo the very next day. That was a Saturday, and on Sunday I called Jeff Blue back and said, I'm done. When should I come out? He laughed and said, no, we need you to record some vocals before sending it to us. Well, he seemed pretty eager for somebody that just swore off music forever. I don't know. He sounds pretty cocky to me. Don't say that. He wasn't cocky. Quote, I was really cocky, so I put the tape in my stereo, (laughs) pushed the phone to the speaker, played him 15 seconds of the song and went, is that good enough for you? He went, or when can you be here? The next day I was on the steps of Zomba Music at 9 a.m. waiting for the doors to open. So they were pretty sure that the whole thing was decided. Like that he would be the singer of the band. But the band had already lined up a bunch of auditions. So they didn't just outright hire Bennington. He would step up and sing with them in between auditions. But then someone else would show up and he'd have to pass the mic over and step down again. Obviously not very cool for a dude who just dropped everything and came to L.A. thinking he already had the gig. So Chester almost told them to go fuck themselves uh, because he had been in a fairly successful band already. So he thought that he was doing them a favor Yet they were treating him like just another audition. Again, nice little ego check for him. Shinoda recalled from the auditions, There was one guy who never wore shoes and he told us he wanted to do stand-up comedy during our show. When I met Chester, my first impression was that he seemed smaller than I thought. He was really skinny with glasses and he was wearing this awful butterfly collar shirt that hung all over him. It made him look like a cheesy guy from Arizona, uh, from an Arizona nightclub bar, which... It's literally exactly what he was. Um, But his vocals on our demo were incredible. He sang like a fucking beast the same way he sings now. Yeah, that that picture is actually... I was trying to find a picture of Chester looking like a a cheesy guy from an Arizona nightclub bar, but I I cropped that out of uh, what I believe is the first picture of Linkin Park together. Ah. 
So the group, they were now called Hybrid Theory. They dove straight into writing. Songs that brought up a lot of painful memories from Bennington's past. While they wrote, Bennington rotated sleeping in his car, the studio, or on his bandmates' couches. Shinoda posted their music on message boards, generating organic interest, but not really attracting any labels, despite performing over 50 showcases. Jeff Blue swoops in once more, now working for Warner Brothers. So he made Hybrid Theory his first signing. But they already had signed a band called Hybrid, so they had to change their name decided to call themselves Lincoln Park. So they had toyed around with a couple of names before, such as Plier and Platinum Lotus Foundation. A little weird. Uh, so yeah. how did they come up with the name Lincoln Park? Well, they got it from their local Lincoln Park in their hometown of Santa Monica, spelled L-I-N-C-O-L-N. One thing to note, especially for our listeners outside of the U.S., is that there are Lincoln Parks all over the U.S. due to one of our, our most famous presidents. Suck my presidential cock, bitch! Yeah. That's it. Number 16, <laughs> Abraham Lincoln, or as I like to refer to him as, Abraham Lincoln. Now you fucked up. Uh, <laughs> he's the one with the top hat and the Donegal beard. So Mike Shinoda says, quote, when we came in, or when we came up with the name Lincoln Park, we wanted to go with the presidential spelling, but we chose L-I-N-K-I-N because we wanted the domain.com. There really wasn't a Google yet, so... If you can imagine coming from that and everything that's happened since then, we've had to roll with it and really stay in touch with our fans, stay in touch with the technology, and try to stay ahead of the curve. So an interesting side effect of probably not knowing that you've just named your band after a place that you can find in nearly every U.S. city is that people think you're a local band. <laughs> Phoenix, the band's bassist, says, There's been radio stations in Chicago that have said, Here's this local band from Chicago, Lincoln Park, and that's actually been happening all over the country. In every major city you go, there will be a Lincoln Park that's either a park or a community. And for a while, everybody thought we were local, like a support act. Yeah, I wonder if it's if it's better or worse that people thought they were a local band. Because sometimes you just you're like, eh, oh, some local band. Yeah, I'll come for the headliner, and then you don't. <laughs> and they are the headliner. Yeah, you're like, wait, hold on, what? You know how people? I was thinking about this too because they were so ahead of the time thinking about like a domain.com name. Mm-hmm. Because it wasn't really a thing. I mean, obviously websites existed, but like that was your first thought in naming your band was what your website was going to say. Also, it would have been funnier if they would have gotten .gov. <laughs> if they could have taken that and then like sold it off for millions of dollars No, you afterwards. can take the ones with different country codes. Like I just found out that our 96X website is 96X.FM, but FM stands for... it. Like for us, it's like, oh, that's cool because it's radio, but it's actually like a country code for some other fucking... Federation, Federated States of Micronesia is what <laughs> FM stands for. But for us, we're like, oh, we're a fucking radio station. Cool. 96x.fm. But it's like for some other country. Like the I wonder if website they, from that area. They probably got the domain <laughs> super cheap, too, because nobody is using it. Yeah. How many websites come from the Federated States of Micronesia? Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Let's Google it. Pretty cool. Right no. No. <laughs> <laughs> we get so off track. The next obstacle was the producer. So that guy did not like their stuff. The band was forced to basically write a whole new record in eight weeks because of it. They also wanted Chester to be the main guy, but it wasn't his band. It was Shinoda's. So it doesn't really make sense. No. They wanted uh, to bring in this other rapper, a reggae guy called Matt Lyons. After that, they told Mike to try and rap like Fred Durst. It was like, are we even on the same fucking planet here? Suck our dicks. That's a quote from, I think, Shinoda. So Mike definitely has his own style and flow, whether you like it or not, that's all subjective, but I'm glad he didn't try to rap like Durst, honestly. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, he's like you said, he's very distinct because no one else sounds like him. But also, as a record company, and they kind of know what they're doing, but also they don't. Why would you take a band you just signed as a whole and then rip them apart to make it more marketable? Like, why would you replace a rapper with a rapper who there's already a rapper? Why do you need someone else to fill that hole? And it's literally his band. Yeah. He's the reason why you're signing them. Yeah, I think this is why in the future people kind of look at them like and think, oh, they're just like a little metal boy band because the producers did have some say in what happened. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, they pretty much turned all that stuff down. Like they rewrote some of the music, but they were like, no, we're not adding a reggae rapper. And like, no, you're not kicking out the guy who created the band. They still had like some integrity to like what they wanted it to sound like. Yeah, their vision. Quote, we cut off all communications with the label unless absolutely necessary, adds Shinoda. At the end of it all, we stood our ground and essentially told everybody, we're going to do this all on our own, our way. If you don't like it, you can drop us. We'll take that risk. After we finished that record, I I felt like we had run a marathon. I remember thinking, I can't believe we did that. It was exhaustion and pride. I'm I'm glad they stuck to the guns, and I, I can't remember who but we've had stories of people fighting against record companies like this and proving they don't need their input it was clean because their label didn't think anybody would like bohemian rhapsody and it's literally the best song of all time yeah don't fight me on that i'm right (laughs) (laughs) on october of 2000 lincoln park released their debut album so because they couldn't use the name hybrid theory as a band name they did one better they named the album that released october 24th 2000 the four main singles were one step closer in the end crawling <laughs> and paper cut all of them responsible for launching lincoln park into mainstream popularity while in the end was the most successful of all four all of the singles in the album remain some of the band's most successful songs to date radio stations had already been playing their music so the group took bets on how many records they thought they'd sell in one week Chester bet 8,000, but it turned out to be 47,000. Yeah, the album actually went on to sell more than 4.8 million copies in its debut year, earning the status of best-selling album of 2001. So being in the industry means that you can rub elbows with other musicians and meet like-minded people. So 2000 is the year that Chester ended up meeting Chris Cornell from Soundgarden. Soundgarden played a major role in the grunge movement during the early 90s, and Cornell had been a rock icon for the better part of a decade. Over the next decade, their friendship and bond would become undeniable. In the next year, they uh, Linkin Park played five to six times a week, rounding out at around 300 shows in one fucking year. Damn. Let me remind you, there are only 365 days in most years. People hailed them as the leaders of new metal, a distinction that they weren't too happy about since they didn't sound like anyone that they were getting lumped in with. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that anybody liked being labeled uh, as new metal. It just appears as not. They did not. Nobody did. Yeah, yeah. Nobody liked being labeled new metal, but it's just the same as the previous generation of bands didn't like being called grunge. So uh, there, but there's a lot of heavy hitters that came out of the new metal era. You got Corn, Slipknot, System of a Down. Obviously, Linkin Park, uh, Static X, uh, Mr. Biscuit and his band. Mr. Biscuit. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Maybe they were incorrectly. Maybe they were incorrectly lumped together into the same category. But even so, uh, one of the things I love about New Metal is how wildly different all of these bands sound when you put them side by side. Yeah, they're all totally different. I have maybe a silly question because I'm not as well versed in metal as you two are. 
new metal it, why is that a negative connotation is it, it because it's it's just a label i think it's so? I, I think it's when Ow. It does have a negative connotation. A lot of people like roll their eyes when they hear new metal, and I think it's because the fans of new metal are douchebags. <laughs> what? So tell me what the difference Thanks. between think, metal no, and new metal would I, be. So new not, metal, new metal is more of like the late '90s, early 2000s when hip hop started becoming incorporated into metal more. Okay. So before that, it was grunge, and like that stuff has a totally different sound. Sure. You can hear the the more hip hop influence in new metal, but it appears in different ways. Whether that is with the rapping, like which Lincoln Park does differently mm-hmm. than Limp Biscuit, or maybe even Corn has Lincoln some. Park. I don't prefer Biscuit. Yeah, well, <laughs> it, it's also I think a lot to do with the fan bases too, because after things like Woodstock '99, when new metal was basically blamed for the chaos and the just rowdy behavior a lot of the new metal fans um were a bunch of teenage boys who acted like fucking idiots so where would you lump in kid rock kid rock is like redneck shit (laughs) (laughs) but he raps sometimes he could kind of i mean he's from that same era but it's I don't know if that I would lump him into uh, new metal. Because in my brain, like I don't listen to them enough, and I would just lump Mr. Biscuit and Kidicus Rockicus together. I think he that could. are they the same he person? He could fit in there. He's more he rock could. than metal, though. Yeah, I think, I think that he could, but he. It's probably that he associates himself more with classic rock artists, yeah. so that and and like southern rock artists. So that pulls him yeah. away from new metal because he wasn't hanging out with like these guys. He was hanging out with like molly hatchet you know or like leonard skinnerd guys he's not or like he hangs out with country artists i think it's who he associates with he does not associate with these guys though he does have some rap and some metal mm-hmm. type components. i would assume him and mr biscuit know each other probably i'm sure they've toured together before yeah i bet um uh, where the fuck are sorry we? <laughs> we're after the the hater jake's part ended and right okay right in between that so uh yeah, here's the part. So Linkin Park also had some haters that looked at them like a label-constructed boy band that hadn't paid their dues on the rock circuit. But 300 shows is paying dues, I think. Um, last time I checked, though, Linkin Park didn't have choreographed dances, like hanging from puppets, strings in their videos. You didn't check hard enough. <laughs> oh, my bad. <laughs> I do, however, have distinct memories of not necessarily being able to escape their songs playing on VH1 every morning. <laughs> Not a bad thing because I mean they do have really catchy songs. I wasn't very heavily into it, but I was like, okay, yeah, this is catchy, and then it would be stuck in your head the rest of the day. Yeah, so. Chester actually had admitted that um, his addictions were used as inspiration for writing during a 2009 interview with Noise Creep. He revealed that crawling was about quote feeling like I had no control over myself in terms of drugs and alcohol. The irony of earning fame and fortune from his demons was not lost on him. He was quoted saying that feeling, being able to write about it, sing about it. Those words sold millions of records. I won a Grammy. I made a lot of money. Um, This is something Lane Staley talked about as well, that he wasn't trying to glamorize drug use or say that like it was cool to do heroin and stuff. But that's what he wrote about, because you write about what you're experiencing and it wasn't glamorous. But all these kids would come up and like brag to him about like, oh, yeah, I'm high right now. And he was like. Ooh, yeah, you're kind of missing the point. I'm not trying to say this yeah. stuff is cool and you should do it. Chester, this is uh, completely different. Chester was also very accident prone. So while on tour for Ozfest in 2001, Chester was bitten by a brown recluse, which is a spider at his Boston hotel. And he decided to continue on with that tour. Pretty crazy because that can put you in the hospital. 
Yeah, uh, it I, should. Yeah, it will. <laughs> I guess it must have been just like performing with a 103 degree temperature. I uh, couldn't find too many details on it other than Chester said to Jimmy Kimmel during an onstage interview that it had bit him on the ass. I got stung by a bee on the ass when I was like 11. Nice. And it was fucking awful. And I had to show my mom my butt. <laughs> He didn't do that like on a regular basis. never seen it before. <laughs> it was uncomfortable at age 11. I thought you were going to say he like broke his leg or something. I wouldn't <laughs> compare a spider bite to an accident. Not, And I know you taking everything literally. I'm not going to be like forcefully getting trying to trying to get bit by a spider. The spider accidentally fell in his pants and bit no. him on the ass. <laughs> no, it's an accident. So. Touring life alienated Bennington from his bandmates rather than bringing them closer together. None of them smoked, so he would smoke and drink on his own, all while fighting constantly with his wife. Shinoda says in those early days that Chester would just disappear and show back up completely obliterated. He adds that Chester was kind of funny at times when this happened, you know, kind of like the the fun drunk, which I think we've most of us have probably experienced. Uh, but the next day, he'd just be completely, obviously, hungover and just really dark and angry at everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's probably the hangover from being the fun drunk. The price yeah. you like, pay. Yeah. Yeah. As, as, you know, being surrounded by bandmates that probably, I mean, I don't know how upfront he was with his past trauma right mm-hmm. off the bat, but I'm sure they didn't know. I mean, they might have known everything. They might not have known and didn't know he was using it to cope or what have you. But, right. I mean, they could have just been like, oh, he's in a funk today. He's hungover. But really, he's like dealing yeah. with everything as a culmination. But they of- also didn't. I mean, even if he had told them about what had happened to him when he was a child and like all the shit he was dealing with. Yeah. It's not like they knew each other very well before they were in a band. They didn't have that that foundational friendship. So they would have just seen yeah, him just like met. that. Yeah. yeah. So he, they're all like, they just kind of met him. So that's like, they don't know what the fuck to do because they didn't start off as friends. And yeah, as we get further in the episode too, we see him very reflective in later interviews about why he was writing what he was writing and why he was using drugs and alcohol to, you know, move away from that trauma. But do you think in that moment he realized, oh, I'm doing this just to not... Yeah, probably, probably. And I think that over time they learned how to support him better, too. Oh, yeah. But I think at first they definitely didn't know. No, they didn't have any idea. They didn't didn't know the story at all. And they didn't really have any way to relate. Mike Mike Shinoda says he did not grow up anywhere remotely the same way that that Chester Chester did. So, you know. Yeah, there's only so much they could do, and they probably, like Jake said, no didn't, they didn't want to piss him off, so they were just like, all right, let him work it out on his own. He's made it this far, you know? Yeah, do men have those meaningful conversations? <laughs> Not as much as they should. Yeah, that's true. So Chester felt miserable and alone on the road, and his mood swings led the others to just avoid speaking to him. Hmm. Bennington said of this experience, I felt like I was doomed to be this lonely person. I thought I would never have a fulfilling relationship with anyone. I thought the only friends I had were Jack Daniels and Mary Jane. At that time, I never performed a show completely sober. I was always smoking weed right up until the moment we went on stage. Immediately after we finished the show, I'd go and get hammered. And since we skipped right over reanimation here, I'll give you a quick rundown. I had a lot of shit to cover, and I didn't <laughs> skip it. I gave you the opportunity yes, yes, yes. to talk I know. We about did, it. Yeah, this is our longest episode, so there was a lot of information. And it was, you know, s- certain things happened on certain tours. It's like, I don't want to mention all these tours, but like... There are key pivotal moments in these tours that we have to mention. So it was yeah. just like, oh, and they were my a God. very fucking oh my God. busy band. Yeah. Yes. So the the band reunites with their former bassist Phoenix 
and begins working on a remix album dubbed Reanimation. Um, it includes new remixes as well as non-album tracks, and Reanimation debuted on July 30th, 2002. The album snagged the second spot on the Billboard 200 and sold nearly 270,000 copies during its debut week. At the beginning of 2002, Linkin Park started the Project Revolution Tour series, describing it as a kind of festival-slash-concert-slash-national tour. They would bring it back in 2003, 2004, 2007, 2008, and 2011. So in April of 2002, Samantha gave birth to her only child with Chester, Draven Sebastian. Without ever really taking a break, the band started recording for their next album, Meteora, which came out in March of 2003. That may be one of my favorite albums of theirs. Though, you know, Hybrid Theory, at least for me, it's kind of right next to it, but I think Meteora edged it out just by a hair. Um, I actually pre-ordered the Meteor 20th anniversary box set a couple of weeks ago while working on this episode. Hmm. So I got like the big one. Like Oof. it's got everything in it. You'll have to do an unboxing with the bag on your head. Uh, Mike Shinoda's has already done one. The Fine. Fuck you then. All right. We don't want to watch you open stuff up anyways. <laughs> During the making of Meteora, Chester was suffering from extreme gastrointestinal issues and abdominal pain, causing him to miss some recording sessions. Meteora's singles, I don't know, maybe you've heard of them, include Somewhere I Belong, Breaking the Habit, Faint, Numb, and they received significant radio attention by October 2003. Lying From You is a great song as well, in my opinion. The album's success allowed Linkin Park to uh, to form another Project Revolution, which featured other bands and artists, including Mudvayne, Blindside, and Exhibit. Um, He's on uh, Pimp My Ride, right? I heard you like carrots, so we're going to put a juicer in the back of your trunk. <laughs> yeah, that happened. <laughs> <laughs> Additionally, Metallica invited Linkin Park to play at the Summer Sanatorium Tour in 2003. It included Mr. Biscuit, um, our boy, Mudvayne, and Deftones. Uh, Bat, you said they got invited to play with uh, Metallica on their yeah. tour. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that may have been the tour where the guys uh, from Lincoln Park actually walked out onto stage during Metallica's set with a picnic basket and, and like sandwiches and shit and sat down above Lars while Chester was skateboarding across the stage what? just to prank him. Oh, that's fun. That yeah. sounds like a fun time. Yeah, I, would, I, th- I would like to have a picnic at a Metallica <laughs> concert on the stage that yeah, they're on performing the stage. on. <laughs> yeah, my, Mike Shinoda was saying that they had... It's like a wholesome prank. Um, yeah, they it's had cute. just known Metallica well enough to get away with it without James just like completely exploding Losing on him. But they're, they're all turning around and laughing at well, him and stuff. they're so. pushing their limits there. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's fun. I like that. So this album, Meteora, was very similar stylistically to Hybrid Theory. And of course, it was a huge hit. They took to the road for another two years straight, and this exacerbated Chester's stomach issues that I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. So he had to leave the video shoot for Numb in Prague for an emergency surgery in the United States. The cause of his pain was a hiatal hernia, which happens when the stomach slides above the diaphragm. Um, with this condition, stomach acid can flow into the esophagus, causing nausea, burning pain, and vomiting. Every time he sang, it aggravated his condition. While hiatal hernias can sometimes be managed with antacids, Chester's required a removal surgery. 
so 2004 rolls around and the band begins working with Jay-Z to produce another remix album titled Collision Course. The album features intermixed lyrics and background tracks from both artists' previous albums and debuted in November 2004. You'd probably be most familiar with the mashup of Numb slash Encore, um, but don't mm-hmm. worry, the whole album is on the playlist because it is wonderful and I love it. Uh, Shinoda also formed Fort Minor as a side project at this time. With the aid of Jay-Z, Fort Minor released their album the rising tide the album had singles of where'd you go and remember the name and both got a lot of radio play and i remember it being specifically used in advertising and a lot of sports promos i think we we talked about it it was definitely in a wrestling thing at some point so by the end of 2004 they were about to burn out yeah chester's marriage was close to failing and his drinking was out of control he stopped leaving the house he says, I'd shack up in my closet in the dark and shake all day. I'd wake up and have a pint of Jack Daniels to calm down. Then I'd pop a bunch of pills and go back in my closet and fucking freak out for the rest of the day. I was a mess. I was falling through windows, having seizures and going to the hospital the whole time. It was fucking ridiculous. I was a total wreck. It was time to reach out for help. I mean, what were causing the seizures? The drugs? I would think in like the lack of food because it doesn't sound like I mean, he was always a skinny guy. And he was just ingesting a lot of drugs. And, like, half of them kill your appetite. Yeah. And he's not eating any fucking food. It's a, it's a wonder that he survived to this point with the amount of stuff he was doing every day. Like, when your only nutrition is a pint of Jack Daniels and that bunch of pills, like, that's fucked. Like, also, no wonder he had stomach issues. Yeah. Can that cause a hernia, though? It- um. Probably not a hernia, but definitely like the, the, stomach acid and stuff yeah, yeah. when you don't have any nutrition in there. I don't think alcohol and, and pills really help out with any sort of acid reflux type right. deal. So um, mm. I think he was definitely fucking himself up from the inside out. But that is where we are going to stop for part two. So make sure you guys tune in in two weeks. We will be getting to the rest of the story because this is really just the beginning for lincoln park Mm -hmm. this is 2004 and they were active until up until his death in 2017 18 17 i think it was 18 nope 17 are you it was 17 yeah (laughs) okay (laughs) it's like i don't trust you but yeah they they (laughs) were were sitting in front of you're the newest you're the newest Yeah, so they were they were active all the way up until the very end. So we've still got, you know, almost 20 years to cover here. Right. It was time for him to reach out to for help. So in the next part of this series, we're going to talk about what that constituted and then, you know, the music that came after that. So Linkin Park had a lot of different style changes i guess that they went through and yeah they still had a lot of really really big stuff to come so we will get into all of that on next next week's episode if you want to take a break from the depressing stuff we've been doing some fun stuff on patreon lately our last episode was about kiss unmasked so check that one out that one was fun and we've got a mini got a fucking goddamn mini episode coming out next monday about how oasis would fight and whatever and turns out like yesterday they they said that they were getting back together they must have heard us talking about them (laughs) yeah we didn't even publish the goddamn mini episode yet and they i just saw an article today about how they were getting back together so that pisses me off but you know listen to our mini episode on it anyways and uh, i just want to say this episode 
is coming out on Wednesday, March 22nd. So two days ago before this episode came out, March 20th, would have been Chester Bennington's 47th birthday. Mm -hmm. Wow. Like I said, part two in a couple of weeks. Stay tuned on the feed. And if you want to join our discussion, check out the playlist, whatever. Make sure you join our Facebook group. It is Death by Music Podcast fans. You guys can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Pretty soon here, we'll let you guys start voting for who we will cover in season six. But we still have quite a lot going on for season five. Uh, after our Chester Bennington series, which will definitely be two parts, like we said, Bessie Smith, The Ramones, Michael Hutchins of In Excess, John Baptiste Lully, and Tupac and Biggie. So we're going to be doing this one for the rest of the year. Probably so long. Yeah. So many to be parts. In four parts. Yes. At least four. Yeah. So thank you guys for listening and rest in peace. Bye. Later. Death by Music podcast is written and produced by Victoria Motler, Alex Motler, Cassie Gardner, and Jake.